0: Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Brian Shivler, and I'm with a team called Resolution Hope that happens to be based here in Pittsburgh. And we spent last year preparing for the launch of the 13A National Awareness Campaign to end child sex trafficking in the United States. And I have to tell you, it is somewhat painful for me on a Sunday morning as a 50-year-old man to have to stand here before you and tell you what's happening here in the United States. But I, I will tell you this. I am so thankful. Our team is so thankful. The FBI is so thankful for congregations like this who are not afraid to look what's happening with our culture in the eye and to step forward and take action about it. So for that, we are eternally thankful. And I'm just going to take a few moments this morning and let you know what I know and then I'm going to ask you for your help. started for me many, many years ago. And I'm sure that many of you here are familiar with the story of Jonah in the Bible. Well, he stands before you. Because I knew for years that God was calling me to the fight of child trafficking and sexual exploitation. And honestly, I ran away from it. Uh, It was last year um, that I took a trip down to Atlanta A friend of mine had set up three days' worth of interviews to try to help me discern what was going on here in the United States with this heinous crime. And it was there, through meetings with uh, the district attorney's office and a a senator, I went to a safe house and interviewed a girl that had been rescued. It was there that I learned the stories uh, of what's happening in the United States with these children. The story of a young teenage girl who was lamenting to her friend at a basketball game that her parents wouldn't allow her to get a tattoo. A man behind her overheard her talking about that and approached her just before halftime to tell her that he was a tattoo artist and his shop was just blocks away from the basketball game and that they could leave at the halftime break and be back. She could have a tattoo under her hairline that her parents would never see. They would be back at the basketball game before halftime ended. And in a moment of youth and poor judgment, she left that basketball game with the wrong person. She would be trafficked and raped and sexually abused for months before, through God's grace, she happened to be saved in a sting operation. And we only know today what happened to her because she's alive to tell us. And the numbers are assaulting to the census. Uh, There was a congressional hearing that reported that there are 100,000 American teenagers caught in the net of sexual exploitation and trafficking in the United States. And that's just an assault. You think about that kind of number, that's a football stadium full of children. And a lot of us are aware of the fact that this kind of thing happens around the world, but to me, that trip in January, last January... To Atlanta was really an eye-opener for me. I learned that the FBI has reported that the revenues from sex trafficking and child exploitation, sexual exploitation in the United States, the revenues are now second only to illegal drug sales. It's sobering what's happening. For us, it's a mission. For the church, it's a mission. I don't have to point you to the verses in your Bible where God calls us to stand for those voiceless. Those children that can't stand for themselves. Our 13A campaign stands as a vigilant reminder of our 13th amendment to our constitution. Which was adopted almost 150 years ago and has outlawed slavery in the United States. This crime is a very, very complex crime. Uh, You you saw the video from Brad Orsini, who is uh, one of our coalition heads here in western Pennsylvania. There are 54 task forces, FBI task forces, around the country that are working on this crime. It's one of the top things now that our FBI has been tasked to do. And in several conversations with Brad, he said to me, Brian, this is, you know, the FBI has to keep a veil between us and the public, and we have to do that unfortunately to keep everyone safe. This crime is so heinous, it's growing so fast, that we have to drop the veil and engage the public. And what we know through studying this is there's hope. Because as I'm sure many of you are shocked to hear this this morning, so are many Americans. They are just in a situation where they cannot really believe what they're hearing. The words, Child sex trafficking in America are not words you would ever think would be strung together in a nation who was founded on freedom. In the land of the free and the home of the brave. But unfortunately, this is the truth of our society. And it's happening all around us. As you you heard Brad allude to, when he talks about this region, he's talking about western Pennsylvania. Two weeks ago, they just had an indictment of a man in Monroeville. So this is not a crime that just occurs uh, in in the major metro areas of uh, you know New York and L.A. and you know some of the some of the areas where you would expect something like this would go on. It's happening in Columbus, Ohio, in Houston, Texas, in Denver. And so I come here today before you to ask you for your help because what we know is where to find the hope in this, and the hope is in that. Americans don't know this is happening. We have been so inspired by the people that have stepped forward to help us when they learn about what's happening. I believe with every fiber of my being that God has had enough of this. I don't know of a more prolific, closer form to pure evil than this, than taking a child and coercing them and selling them for sex. The average number of years that a child can live once they are abducted and put into this trade is seven years before they commit suicide, they overdose, or are murdered. And so the track is a bad one once it starts. And God can do anything to restore these girls, but it's a difficult road back. So I stand before you this evening, or or this morning, to ask you for help. Our 13A campaign is very simple, and it's built to raise awareness nationally, because we know... That awareness creates public opinion en masse. And when we can create public opinion en masse, we know that shapes policy and law. You guys are very familiar with that. And when we can shape policy and law, it requires the enforcement resources to be able to uphold that law. And we are all the way back, unfortunately, at the awareness piece of what has to happen. Here's what we're asking Christchurch to do. To stand with us this Sunday, today. Our 13A campaign is very simple. What we're trying to do is raise a million signatures. To drop a million signatures on the White House. To ask the President and our government to get involved in this fight. And so you have a card today that's in front of you somewhere that talks a little bit about the 13A campaign. And what we're hoping you'll do today is go online... And you'll see there are a couple steps there. One is to watch a four-minute video. The other one is to donate $5 to this cause so that we can continue our educational efforts through our Legacy of Freedom concert tour and that we can help restorative efforts to help bring these girls back and to sign the petition to the president. Now, there will be approximately 1,000 people in church this morning here. If every one of us Prayerfully committed to jumping onto that website and signing the petition and getting 10 of our friends to do that before midnight tonight, asking 10 of our friends to spend 10 minutes educating themselves about what's happening and signing that petition. We will have secured by tomorrow morning 11,000 signatures. And so as a man, and I know several of you in this congregation, I live in Wexford. I know the reputation of this church. And I know how bold you are when it comes to meeting the sins of our society. And so I stand here before you, and I will beg if you ask me to, that you help us. Stand with us. Take 10 minutes today. Jump on the website and ask 10 of your friends to help you. Will you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful for congregations like this. I am so thankful for godly people who are chasing your will through their faith, Lord. And I ask that you speak into each one of our hearts as to how you would help us stand up to this evil. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Brian, may may I pray for you? Absolutely, yes. Church, let's pray for Brian and for all those in authority that are working hard on this critical issue in our time. Father God, we ask for your blessing, your mercy on Brian, his team. We pray, Father, for like-minded workers to come alongside, to partner with them. We pray for financial resource and all that they need. And Father God, will you open the gate and give them... Lord uh, the ability to speak truth to power and we do pray for those in authority we pray God that they would wake up and take action in the mighty name of Jesus Christ who's risen from the dead and ruling and reigning over this dark and fallen world God's people said Amen. 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 Thank you Brian. Thank you. Well that's that's sobering. I'd like to say that we have to get a, a accurate, clear picture of current reality if we're going to uh, make any attempt to, to move forward, to align together, and to try to, to, try to both restrain evil and uh, to create a, 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 a better future for our children. And this text that we're looking at today is is a clear-eyed text, it's a, it's a hard text, it's a truthful text, it's a completely and utterly and totally accurate description of our times. It describes history, it describes our present situation, and it points to the future with accuracy and truth. It's sobering. This passage teaches that when false teachers replace the love of God with self-love, evil intensifies. But when evil teachers in the church release ungodly teaching and ungodly ethics, and when they go from bad to worse as paul writes in 2nd timothy the truth endures and all those who embrace it though they may suffer for the truth will endure as well evil teaching begets evil ethics but the bible says their folly will be exposed God's Word exposes it, God's Spirit exposes it, and the fruit of their lives will be exposed. That's, that's the thrust of this very difficult passage that we're looking at today. It's, it's, it's somewhat nightmarish, this passage. It's called a vice list. We'll look at it in just a moment. My question for you this morning is, how far do you think society can decline as it unwinds towards the apocalypse. How far? Will the apostate church ever hit bottom like a like a drunk who supposedly goes all the way, keeps going, keeps going? They say really that this doesn't happen. This is a myth. Drunks don't hit bottom, they just keep going till they die. Will the apostate church, you know, wake up or will it go from from, from bad to worse? Will it ever hit the bottom or will it just continue to to new lows of heresy and and vice? If Paul's nightmarish list found here in our passage today, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, if, if this is a true description of his times and ours, and if it's accurate, then the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to describe his times and ours and our future. And friend, I have to tell you, the trajectory is not good. But there is hope. Because our God is good all the time. God is good. All the time, all the time God is good. Now that saying is a little new to me. I guess it originated in Uganda And we say it virtually every week. But this is one of those moments, one of those days when we have to believe it. We have to believe that our God is good all the time. And that his hand is on history. And yes, the church ebbs and flows. In some places it... It increases and becomes strong. There, there are places where the church is thriving and active, restraining evil, proclaiming the good news, and accomplishing great good in our world. There are other places where it's anemic and feeble. Why? Because false teaching has crept into the church and undermined it from within. Twenty years ago, when I was flirting with becoming an Episcopalian, just sort of not really, but but interested, I took a class at Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. It was good to be back in my home area, and I I took a class from a brilliant professor, Dr. uh, Alan Ross, and it was a class on Romans. It was one of the best classes I ever had. I loved the professor, I loved the school, but I could not, in my heart, partner with a denomination which was headed in the wrong direction. And so I find it so odd that here I am, more than 20 years later, standing before you, pastoring a church that's come out of that situation, following God's word, being faithful to God's word. And John and the founding members of, of this church, decided to take a courageous stand for truth, and stand against the heresy that was bubbling up in the church and and corrupting hearts and minds and saying, no, we're going to take a stand. We're going to do something that's going to be good and healthy and sound and produce life. And it's going to be in the Anglican tradition, yes, but it's going to be different. Boy, what a privilege. What an amazing privilege for me all these years later to be your pastor, I could have never planned it or anticipated that this would happen. In my life, I, I consider it a small miracle, and I'm grateful for it. But this passage describes in, in, in a rather nat- nightmarish list a devolution, a devolving of our, of our culture and, and of the church. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it. The times have been, the times are now, and the times will increasingly become evil, morally corrupt, morally chaotic. That's why I've I've entitled this message, Truth in Turbulent Times. History shows that moral decadence is a constant because the sinful nature is never eradicated. It doesn't skip a generation. It's only restrained. It can be renewed by the Holy Spirit. God's Word can transform the heart by transforming the mind and thereby transforming the life and thereby transforming the family and transforming a community, and great good can happen. But it is a constant battle from generation to generation. The the sinful fallen nature does not skip a generation. As it's written in Genesis God, the holy judge of all the earth, punishes the first brutal, angry murderer, Cain. Cain was very angry, the Bible says, and his face fell. The Lord spoke to Cain. He said, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and he killed him. The first murder. Times have been brutal from the, from the get-go. The cancer of sin has spread across our globe. It is in every human heart. The only antidote is the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, we are in turbulent times. We've always been in turbulent times. We may have seasons of respite. When God's mercy comes down on a country and the church becomes enlivened by God's word and spirit. But unfortunately those seasons are fleeting. And in every generation we have to we have to renew our our faith. We have to renew our, 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 our commitment. We have to get our hearts straightened out. That compass needle in our heart has to point to true north. It has to point to God. And then and only then can we restrain the evil that is lurking at every door. That story that Brian told about the young gal who Who, in a moment of foolishness, and who hasn't had one of those this week, steps out for a tattoo and ends up enslaved and abused? God, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. It's almost overwhelming. Mark this, terrible times, Paul said. Terrible, stressful times of difficulty in the last days. When are those last days? The best analogy I've ever heard is from World War II. Our beloved Bishop John Rogers, who participated in my installation, a a stalwart, stout man of God. Who stood for the truth for a long, long time. He's one of my favorite characters in all of in all of Pennsylvania. Studied under a man named Oscar Kuhlmann and Karl Bart at the great University of Basel in Switzerland. And Kuhlmann was famous for this, this illustration from World War II. He lived through that. In World War II, as you know, when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. The war was, in effect, essentially over. Sort of. Sort of. They knew that the overwhelming resources and the overwhelming engine of free people fighting for freedom would eventually win that war if they could gain a foothold, a toehold on the beach. And Kuhlmann said that that is a good picture of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. When he came, he came announcing the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the kingdom came. In the life, ministry and work of Jesus Christ and the victory was won, the Bible promises, in his death and in his resurrection. The battle has already been won, and yet, just as in World War II, many lives were lost after, after that beachhead was established. Some of the fiercest fighting occurred after we won at Normandy. Many thousands were killed at Normandy, and many thousands were killed later, but the, the outcome was inevitable. Likewise, we've read the end of the book. We know that Christ didn't come just as a suffering servant in his first advent, but that he is also coming as a ruling king who will judge the earth and redeem and restore it. Do you believe that this morning? Our king is coming. He will smash injustice. He will pay back the individual who took that little girl and corrupted her and brutalized her and harmed her, he will do it. He will do it. Do you believe that this morning? And between now and then, we have work to do. We have work to do. We have to occupy until he comes. We have to work until he comes. We have to serve until he comes. We have to love. We have to love until he comes. Mark this, terrible times in these last days. The end started with the first advent. The end will conclude, be consummated in the second advent In these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken to us by his Son. The Apostle Peter writes, Christ was made manifest in the last times for your sake. The end of the last days will bring an intensification of evil, I believe. Matthew 24, verse 12 says, because lawlessness, this is our Lord speaking, will be increased. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, the one who endures, church, the one who perseveres together in love, in truth, to the end, will be saved." This gospel of the kingdom, our Lord said, will be proclaimed throughout the whole globe as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, and listen, and teachings of demons in the church Peter says, scoffers will come in the last days. Jude says, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their ungodly desires. And in this passage, we see 19 reasons. This is true. 19 reasons the times are so turbulent. The bottom line here is this. Evil people invert love. They invert love. The Bible says that we are to love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. The Lord Jesus said that upon those two commands, everything hangs. It all fits together around those two things. But the problem with sin, the problem with evil is that it inverts that and it turns it inward. Paul says people will be lovers of themselves. They'll be narcissistic. Luther, the great 16th century reformer church leader, described sin as man curved in on himself. It's inverted love. Archbishop William Temple, the 19th century uh, leader in the Church of England, described the sin of loving oneself like this. He said, I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by widening my horizon of interest. So far, Temple said, it's like the climbing of a tower which widens the horizon for physical vision while leaving one still the center and standard of reference. In other words, you climb for a better view, Education, knowledge can can get us up that, that tower, that cathedral of learning, but we can still remain the center of our lives, curved in on ourselves. We will be lovers of self because we are sinners in need of grace. Paul continues, lovers of money, materialistic. Note that he also includes in elder qualifications, parish council qualifications, that we not be greedy and eager for ill-gotten gain. He says, in turbulent times, people will be lovers of money. Boastful, that is, braggarts who draw attention to accomplishments with boastful words. Americans consider ourselves VIPs. I heard of a, a license plate that once was auctioned for, I think it was, $250,000 that said, VIP One. Boastful. Proud, Paul says, arrogant, proud thoughts, that's what the Greek intends, proud thoughts of an inflated view of self. Malcolm Muggeridge, the, the great, clear-eyed journalist of of the evil of, of the Soviet Union, wrote that, that the tiny dungeon of the ego holds man enslaved. Paul continues. In these times, then and now, people will be abusive, verbal bullies, disobedient to their parents, a rebellious spirit, ungrateful, meaning they they assume they have a right to all that they get, unholy, indifferent, indifferent to the moral beauty of Jesus Christ, indifferent to all those things that he has created that are true and beautiful and noble, indifferent to those things. Without love, heartless, unable to sympathize, unforgiving, unappeasable, meaning unwilling to forgive, relentless in their bitter unforgiveness, slanderous, that is, devilishly distorting what others say and do, without self-control, a slave to their own appetites, brutal, no tenderness whatsoever, not lovers of good, unable to enjoy God and his good creation, treacherous, traitorous, always looking for their own advantage, willing to exploit anything and anyone, rash, reckless, craving admiration merely for being a risk taker. Conceited. That is, swollen with conceit. Do you know this word puffed up with pride? You know what that really kind of means? Have you ever eaten at a really, really good Mexican restaurant and you eat a lot of beans? It's not too, you know, puffed up. Swollen with gas. That's what pride is. Oscar Wilde returning to England, approached the custom agent. He was asked if he had anything to claim. He said, I have nothing to declare but my genius. Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest in the world! Conceded swollen, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, finding more satisfaction in physical titulation than in, in admiring God and his, his glory and goodness to us, having a form. And here's the really brutal part for those of us who name the name of Christ and, and, and wear these, these robes, having a form or an appearance of godliness but denying its power, using religion for personal gain, being a shell of a man. Oh, how many people have cited the creeds, but redefined them and emptied them of their meaning, but will stand up week after week. Pastors I'm talking about, people with theological training who will will cite the creeds, but believe their metaphors, Of what? Their own imagination, perhaps. They go through the motions, having that form, appearance of godliness, but there's no there's no power in it to bring new life. There's no power in it to restrain evil. They can't even restrain their own evil. That's why we have pedophilia rampant in sectors of the church. We have we have we have a lot of problems. And Paul says, have nothing to do with them. Zero. Now, later in this epistle, he does say, do the work of evangelists. Of course, we're to reach out, we're to rescue, we're to proclaim the good news, we're to be the good news, we're to look for door openings for the good news. I had a wonderful opportunity this week to, to share the good news with a young man who'd, who'd been busted. You know, it was, it, was, it was glorious. We're to do that. But we're not to get comfy in that place. We're not to get comfy with this stuff. We're to do the work of evangelism to rescue the perishing, but we're not to make their home our home. Now, Paul concludes on a note of hope, and we must hear this note of hope or we can't finish this sermon. He says their folly is going to be made clear. They're the kind of teachers who warm their way into homes and, and gain control over weak-willed. This literally means little women. Now note something real quick here, ladies, that, that he is speaking to a particular group of women at Ephesus. He's not saying that women throughout all of history are necessarily weak-willed by nature. Any more than he is saying that the men, these false teachers that he's correcting, are brutal and guilty of all these sins that he's enumerated. He's saying that there's a group of women who are loaded down, verse 6, loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, chasing, questing, learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Perhaps they were new converts or not yet fully born into the kingdom of God, and they were constantly searching or something and paying these false teachers. Evidently, they were wealthy, and, and they were paying these false teachers to tickle their ears and, and lead them around. And Paul then uses an unusual analogy. He says that they will always be learning, but never to be able to acknowledge the truth, Never, never, you know, never center down on, on some solid truth. They say, you know, that, that it's good to have an open mind, but just make sure your brains don't fall out. You know, eventually an open mind is supposed to close on something and, and hold on to it. But there is this tendency among some to, to always be learning, but never, never arrive. And Paul says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, corrupted minds, who are as far as the faith is concerned, they're rejected. They're rejected. They're disqualified. And then he ends on this note of hope. But, oh, thank you. Thank you, God, for inspiring the Apostle Paul to put those three little letters in this very difficult vice list. But. But they will not get very far. They will not get very far. Because as in the case of of these men, their folly will be clear to everyone. God's truth eventually will win out. False prophets, false teachers eventually will be known by by their bad fruits. God's holy remnant, God's elect, oftentimes difficult to discern, what that is and how that fits together but but we believe that our god is in charge of this world broken and marred as it is the kingdom is here in part and the kingdom is coming in its fullness hang in there endure persevere together work hard to make his name famous in this earth. Let's pray. Almighty God, we don't come to you as saviors without stain, without blemish. We come to you as sinners rescued by a gracious God. We ask that you would create in us a gratitude for grace and a desire for godliness that will propel us to occupy and advance the kingdom of God until our king comes. Amen.